Hebrews 11 tonight. Now we're studying Exodus, as you know, but I always like to start off with another passage just to throw you a curveball. So anyway, (laughs) Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus. Hebrews 11.22 You there? Okay, I'm going to give you a second. Hebrews 11.22 What is Hebrews 11 called, by the way? The great hall of faith. Okay. By faith, Hebrews 11.22 Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus. And if you're a note taker, you might want to just underline that, highlight it. He made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, verse 23, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Now there's a good summation of uh, the book of Exodus and it's found in Hebrews. And one of the key words that you're going to see here is faith. The faith of Joseph and the faith of Moses. As you turn now to the book of Exodus, which is the second book of your Old Testament, I want to just kind of implant that word in your brain tonight, faith. And I want to highlight the faith of two people, the faith of Joseph and the faith of Moses. And I want to encourage you tonight that when you place your faith in the living God, God will do incredible, marvelous things through your life. And all it takes oftentimes is the faith of one or the few. As a matter of fact, God seems to want to work that way often. He seems to want to take little numbers and do mighty things with them. And so as we get into the book of Exodus, I want you to be thinking about faith. And I want to introduce to you uh, the first few verses of this particular book. And I just want to give you a, a few highlights of the book as we jump in. The first five books of your Old Testament were written by Moses. And there are some debates about whether or not he wrote all the parts and whether or not there was some scribal insertions. But in the end, the Bible teaches, both in the Old and New Testaments, that the author of the Pentateuch, which is Greek, or the Torah, which is Hebrew, is Moses. In Exodus 24.4, it says that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. 
Moses is the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you've studied the names of the books of the Bible, you know that those are the first five books and those are those books that were penned by Moses. Now Moses, in uh, Exodus 1 verse 1 says, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Verse 5. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Now there's a verse in the book of Acts, I think it's Acts 7.22 that says there were 75 persons in all. And I think the best conclusion there is that that was not counting, the 70 was not counting Joseph and his family. So you have 70 recorded in here. And these were all those who came from the loins of Jacob. Jacob was renamed to Israel. And his 12 sons listed here are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so if you look at the names, you'll see 11 listed there and then Joseph would be the 12th. Now Joseph died, verse 6, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Now I want you to notice the book of Exodus starts off with a really quick um, chronology of the 12 tribes and it mentions Joseph here. And if you re remember the story, uh, Exodus is simply a sequel to Genesis. It's written by the same author and it's a continuation of the story. And in the book of Genesis, there was a fam famine in the land, you remember. And so uh, people were in trouble. There was the potential for starvation. And the brothers of Joseph weren't really happy with him. He had, remember that cool coat of many colors and his dad used to brag on him. And so the brothers wanted to do away with Joseph. And the brothers one day did do that. They sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph, you remember, ended up in Egypt. And he became a servant. And he spent many, many years in prison for a charge that was levied against him that was untrue. Do you remember what the charge was against Joseph? That he had attempted to uh, make a pass at Potiphar's wife. And of course, the charge was untrue. She was making passes at him and he ran out and ran away from her. And by the way, if you're ever tempted to sin, the best thing to do is run. Flee <laughs> youthful lust. Run as fast as you can and hopefully you'll have your clothes on when you do. <laughs> but Joseph did whatever he could to get away from this woman, but she levied a false charge against him and he ended up in prison. And Joseph spent probably, I think scholars would agree, some 14 years in prison. During that time, Joseph was a faithful man. Even though he was uh, accused falsely and he was in a place that he shouldn't have been, he still was faithful to God. He was known as a man who could be trusted and who would do his work and he would begin to progress wherever he was. The blessing of the Lord was on Joseph. And Joseph, uh, through this whole thing, 
the Lord's speaking to him and uh, there's dreams that take place and you remember Joseph interprets the dreams and eventually he keeps Egypt from falling into a radical famine by getting them to, to store things and that's eventually why his brothers and dad have to come to Egypt. You remember, Joseph probably could have been well tempted because he became the second highest ruler in Egypt. Brothers came he finally revealed himself to the brothers. And if you want to just turn back to Genesis, just a few uh, pages all, is all you have to turn. Look at chapter 50, verse 17. Genesis fifty seventeen. Thus you shall, shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am I in God's place. This is Genesis 50, verse 20. Very key theological verse. And as for you, you meant it evil against me, the whole slavery thing and wanting to do away with Joseph, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. If you have a pen, would you just write next to Genesis 50, 20, Romans 8, 28? Because this is a great parallel verse to Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Working all things together for good is a Greek word Paul uses in Romans 8.28. It's a Greek word called synergeo. It's where we get the word synergy. And if you've been in corporate America, corporate America, at least a few years back when I was there, used to like to talk about synergism, taking all these different parts of companies and people and having them work collectively together towards a common goal. Well, Paul says God works all things together synergistically for the good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes when we see the individual uh, situations in our lives, we say, how can that be good? And 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 as a matter of fact, we'd have to say, it's not good. There are many situations uh, where this Bible verse doesn't say every situation is good. It says that God will work all things together for good. When Joseph's sitting in the prison and he's on year 11 under a false accusation, he doesn't know about Romans 8.28. And sometimes when we're in the midst of our troubles, when we're struggling, when we can't figure things out, we at least have Romans 8.28. And we know the promise that God will take all this and work it together for good. This is basically what Joseph is saying. He's saying, look, you guys meant this for evil, Genesis 50.20, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, notice, this present result, and what was the result? To preserve many people alive. God synergistically took the events. He knew what was going to happen. He knew Joseph would end up in Egypt. He gave him supernatural wisdom from above and he took all of the circumstances that looked chaotic and looked wrong and looked bad and used them and worked them together for good. That is the incredible mind of our God. That's his incredible power that he can do things like that. He can take things that look so dark to us and we can think back to what Carrie was just talking about in his testimony 
and yet he can bring about a beautiful result. So therefore, do not be afraid, verse 21, Genesis 50. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Boy, Joseph could have spewed a lot of venom at this point. He probably could have thought back to many a night when he said, why? Why did my brothers do this to me? If they wanted the coat, I would have given them the coat. Why this result? Why? Why? And I often find myself saying that word. Why? Why, Lord? Or do you do this one? What did I do to deserve this? Right? And we get why-itis. Dr. Martin used to say that he thought he, his kids suffered from whyitis. Why does this happen, Daddy? Why is that, why is that this color? <laughs> he said you could die from whyitis. But anyway. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, verse 22. He and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. And so Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, if you go back to Exodus, just a few pages over, that is what I call a legacy. Everybody know what a legacy is? It's basically what you leave behind after you're gone. And the legacy of Joseph is a legacy of faithfulness. I have a question for you. You know, this life is short, We're only going to be here a little bit of time and then we're going to be gone. We're going to be into eternity. And the question I have for you is, what is your legacy? Is your legacy going to be a legacy of faithfulness? Even when it gets hard, even when you struggle, even when you can't figure things out? Well, Joseph has a tremendous legacy here. And Joseph, you remember, was a steward in Potiphar's house and he was faithful. And in 1 Corinthians 4.2, it says, it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. The one requirement of a steward of God is he be faithful. And the idea in that context is that he shows fidelity to Christ and to the gospel. What's fidelity mean? Faithfulness. I'm going to be faithful to my God. I'm going to do what he calls me to do, whatever the season, whatever the time, whether in season or out of season, preach the word. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, says Jesus. So he wants faithfulness. And so if you think about Joseph, Joseph is, his legacy is at the beginning of this book. And the sons of Israel in Exodus 1-7 were fruitful and indeed increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. It was swarming with Jews, if you will. Now a new king arose, and this is several hundred years later, 
over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, there's all kinds of conjecture by historians about who this is. Some early historians said this, uh, the uh, Pharaoh of the Exodus is Ramses, but you've got to go back because Moses is not even going to uh, get involved with the Exodus until he's 80 years old, so you've got to figure out who was reigning at that time. And there was actually a group that were uh, at least part Semitic that took over the Egyptian throne in history at some point. And I think it's called the Hiskos dynasty, if I'm correct. But all this conjecture, who is the uh, Egyptian pharaoh at this time and who is the pharaoh of the Exodus and is it Ramses? Is it uh, some of these other guys? We really don't know. And I'm not going to spend a bunch of time trying to figure out who the pharaoh is. But the king that arises at this particular time does not know Joseph. Either he does not know, want to know about him or he's ignoring the history of Joseph's faithfulness. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, verse 10, let us deal wisely with them lest they multiply and in the event of war they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So the king is worried. He's saying, man, these Israeli people are multiplying everywhere. They're more in number. They're strong. They're vigorous people. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you will find out how vigorous the Jews are. They are serious about their work. They are serious about the army. They are serious about life. And they go about it in a very uh, strong way. And so here... The king is concerned and he says, let us deal wisely with them. I don't want uh, an invading army to come and them to turn on us. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. Now as we get into the book of Exodus, I want to talk to you a little bit about typology. If you've ever encountered typology, typology is something you'll find in the Old Testament that is a reflection or a picture of a fulfillment in the New Testament. Often you'll find types of Jesus uh, through the sacrificial system and so forth. In the book of Exodus, you're going to find typology like this. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Egypt is a type of the world. Moses is a type of Christ who delivers the children of Israel out of bondage. You remember that during the time of the Passover, you had to apply the blood on the doorpost and lentil. That lamb that dies there is a type of the Lamb of God, of Christ. So you have all these pictures and types that will be fulfilled. And if you think about Pharaoh being a type of Satan, Egypt a type of the world, I want you to notice what he does to keep down the Israelis, the, the Hebrews. He appoints taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now these taskmasters are reflected in uh, pictures and paintings that they found archaeologically speaking. Uh, e Egyptian archaeologists have found paintings and uh, reliefs that depict uh, people who don't appear to be Egyptian working and making bricks and working in the fields and trying to water fields. And they depict Egyptians with whips and sticks ready to beat on these people. 
So these are reflected in archaeological discoveries. Well, here you find in the Bible that these taskmasters are appointed and they are to afflict the people of God. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, you remember the scene when uh, Moses, Charlton Heston, comes down into the mud pits. And you remember that they're the old men and, and uh, anybody they can get to work are doing the mud dance. Remember that? And the straw is being uh, uh, driven into the mud to create these bricks uh, of which then they would build these cities. And you remember that the taskmasters were there and if you took a break or you got out of line in any way, whack, they hit you with a whip. And they wouldn't even hesitate to kill you and let you die right there. And so the, the taskmasters are appointed to rob the Jews of freedom, to afflict them with task after task, heavy burdens and loads so that they can't focus on anything but the work that Egypt wants them to do. And I want you to see the symbolism or the picture. Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. And what Satan does is he tries to get you involved, involved in tasks that will become your master. He tries to get you involved in busyness and distraction. He gives you a task after a task after a task. And in, in, in the final analysis, we'd have to say that oftentimes those tasks are building Pharaoh's kingdom. Are you with me? The world's kingdom. Now, it's not bad to be about tasks, but if the tasks become your master, then you're in trouble. Because you are, as a Christian, supposed to have just one master, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't do that. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, when Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church, and they were definitely people who were out of control and needed to be dealt with, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, 1 Corinthians 6.12, but I will not be mastered or dominated by anything. I'm not going to let anything in this world, any of the bricks, if you will, of this world, take my eyes off my true master. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters tonight, as Americans, our tasks can often become our masters. And it's not even our, only our tasks, it's our hobbies. It's our little things that we think we have to do or we think that we have to accomplish. And we might step back and look in the mirror like Carrie had that moment at uh, Toys R Us when he really got a look at himself and we might ask ourselves this question. Whose kingdom am I really building? Am I building the Lord's kingdom? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things, the little tasks that we have to get to, will be added unto us. Or am I building the world's kingdom? Oftentimes we have to sweat it out, you know, uh, as churches, month to month. Can we get people to do this? Can we get people to do that? Can we get people to serve? Can we actually get somebody to care? That's not the way it should be in the kingdom of God, and that's not the way it should be in the body of Christ. Are you with me? Would you agree? But sadly, the world has got us so about our tasks, quote unquote. Not all of them bad, don't get me wrong. But we've got it so out of whack today. We're so busy. We just don't have time for God. I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to do that. Well, here the taskmasters are appointed and they are severely scarring the Hebrew people. And notice that in verse 11 it says Pharaoh's getting the 
Uh, he's getting the dividends because storage cities are being built for him in Pithom and Ramses. But the more, uh, interestingly enough, the more that they afflicted the Hebrews, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And this idea of dread there means that the Israelis, the Hebrew people, when they saw that they still multiplied even under the persecution plan of Pharaoh, made them sick to their stomach with dread. Oh no, the plan's not working. They're still multiplying. I'm sick to my stomach. And oftentimes, I think the world kind of looks at Christians that way and says, you Christians make me sick. Always talking about Jesus and always talking about heaven and always talking about the blessings of the Lord, the blessings of the Lord, right? Come on, get off that Christian stuff. But you know, deep down inside, oftentimes those people that are mad at you are totally feeling their emptiness. And your light is a little too bright for them. They don't like it. They don't like the implications of it because it shows something in their own lives. And so the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. They would not give up. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and all their labors which with, with which they rigorously imposed on them. They said, we're not going to give up. We're going to make it harder and harder and harder and more rigorous, more distractions. We're going to make their lives bitter. And when the Jews celebrate the Passover, even till today, they will have a portion of the meal, bitter herbs, to remember their time of bondage in Egypt, to remember what they went through as they suffered. And so the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shipra and the other whose name was Pua. Now sometimes when you see names like that, you go, why are these names listed? Well, these two midwives are probably the leaders of the collective midwives because there are so many people and so many babies being born. But their, their names are interesting. Shipra means beautiful one and Pua means splendid one. And these are Hebrew names and Hebrew midwives. And so if you think of Pharaoh being a type of Satan, notice that his plan doesn't seem to be working. His persecution plan is not as effective as he hopes. As he hopes. So he said, when you are helping, verse 16, the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is the son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. You see, he says, hey, the persecution plan is not working. These people are still multiplying. They're a threat. They're a dread. They make me sick. I got a plan. Let's kill them. Now, Pharaoh didn't seem to want to do his own dirty work, though. He says to the Hebrew midwives, you're there when the children are born. If that child's coming down the birth canal, literally this is what the Hebrew language means, before he even hits the mat, kill him. And you can't help but think in our society today of abortion. And especially the procedure of partial birth abortion. And I won't get into graphic details, but you guys have heard enough to know that before that baby even comes all the way out of mama, they, the doctor will kill that child. That's legal in the United States. Now I know it's been being fought and I think there's some positive moves coming about but this is this is pharaoh's plan this is hey just take them out just kill them but the midwives verse 17 notice oh key phrase they feared god 
That's the key to life right there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And so these two, beautiful one and splendid one, they didn't want to ruin their names and they said, you know what? We are not going to kill these baby boys. We've got to, to disregard this, this law, this command from Pharaoh. And they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. You haven't gone with my program. I have a destruction program I'd like to put in place. I, I want you to sign my contract. As soon as you see it's a boy, just kill him. You shouldn't have a problem with that, should you? It's not a moral dilemma for you, is it? I mean, just kill them. They're a baby after all. It's no big deal. The world's program. It's reminiscent of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. They summoned them. They said, hey, we don't want you to teach or speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 4. Peter and John said, whether it is right in the sight of God to heed you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. In other words, we're not going to obey you because God told us to speak the gospel. Oftentimes people get all caught up in this. Did the midwives lie? Isn't that a breaking of one of the commandments? Look, they followed the higher law and the higher law was to fear God and not kill innocent children. Amen? I'm glad you're awake. So the king of Egypt, he called for them and he's upset. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, now here's where it gets a little thick theologically, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives can get to them. Now notice, what does God do? This is almost reminiscent of uh, Cory Tim Boom in Nazi Germany. You remember when the Nazis would come to the door and they would say, do you have any Jews in here? Are you hiding any Jews? Would you lie? Yes. Why would you lie? Because you're supposed to be accountable to a higher law. You don't say, oh, they're in the basement. Go ahead and kill them now. Go ahead and exterminate them. I'm sorry, but it's pretty obvious to me what you should do in that kind of situation. And this is what the midwives did. They said, hey, they're too vigorous. We can't get there in time. And God blessed them for it. And, uh, you know, if there's ever a time of persecution in the United States, if there's ever a time when your life is on the line for your faith, uh, there's a higher law. There are things that supersede other things. Don't bear false witness is a general command. And it applies across the board to white lies, brown lies <laughs> and whatever other lies there are but in the end this is something that happened and God honored what they did because they would not do what the Pharaoh said it came about because the midwives feared, feared God that he established households for them well then Pharaoh commanded all his people see he wouldn't give up with just the midwives saying every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive you see he got the whole uh, group of people involved with the program he said if you're Egyptian this is the implication of the verse if you're Egyptian and you see a Hebrew child born with the mama whatever it needs to die not only does it need to die but you're to take that child and you're to cast them into the Nile River what did the Egyptians think of the Nile River by the way they worshipped it they said the Nile was a god and I wonder, in my mind, does that mean that they were supposed to take the Hebrew children and sacrifice them 
to the god, one of the gods of Egypt, maybe. Well, this is how the opening chapter closes out. Pharaoh gives this command. He says, every son who is born, I want him cast into the Nile. Cast him to our God. Sacrifice the young ones. And tonight, not much has changed, has it? Seems like Satan focuses a lot of his attention on the young people. Incredible, ridiculous laws that people are trying to pass to force lifestyles that are godless upon our children. In Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler said if he could take a generation of children and change their mindset, he could rule the world. That's a paraphrase. But the idea is you get them young, you get them indoctrinated, and in our culture it's drugs and alcohol and pornography, and you can go down the list, wreck them young, ruin them, get their eyes off God, get their taskmasters in control, weave them in as much sin as you can, and they won't come to Christ. That's Satan's plan. And we as the people of God need to preach the gospel of God that delivers and saves people. And as we go through the book of Exodus, what are we going to see? We're going to see a group of people who are there in bondage and all of a sudden God hears the cry and he delivers them in a mighty way. And Gide, you said, Emmanuel, you said in your opening prayer that this is a book of salvation because we're going to see that the book of Exodus, remember, Pharaoh, a type of Satan, Egypt, a type of the world, Moses, a type of Christ, the blood of the lamb. You're going to see God come into Egypt, a type of the world, and pull his people out and show signs and wonders that make people who don't believe in the Bible make their heads spin. He's going to part seas and he's going to drown the Egyptian army and he's going to be a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. We're going to see incredible things and we're even going to see where God gives his laws but we're going to see some beautiful things coming up here in the book of Exodus and as we close uh, this message tonight I just want to tell you that ultimately this book is about Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the one that saves and delivers from all the false gods and all the things that Satan will throw at us and the taskmasters that he wants to put on our lives and tonight if you know him personally and I know most of you on a first name basis then we need to celebrate that victory. We need to make sure that he's ruling in our lives, that the Pharaoh has no place, that he's out, and that we're serving the Lord and building the kingdom of God brick by brick. And that's going to take some sacrifices on our part. That's why you're here on a Wednesday night, aren't you? Because you know you need the word of God. Because you know you need to be edified and encouraged. And that's why I'm here too. Because uh, that's why we praise him. That's why we sing. Because he's given us everything. And so as we study this book together, it's going to be a tremendous time.